One thing I was really curious about as far as you about being the CEO, real quick highlight, what's one of the best things about being the boss? I'll never think of myself as the boss, but as our CEO, I think it's just getting to really help teams collaborate. So regardless of how much you try and break down the barriers of information and visibility as to what's going on in the entire org, if you're not the CEO, you effectively have some functional expertise or domain in an area. Even if you do have a broad mandate or remit, it's not the entire remit. And so I think one of the coolest things that I get to do on a day-to-day basis is really help other leaders work effectively with each other, break down barriers on communicating or figuring out how to line tighter on priorities and progress. And so that's been an incredibly fun and tough learning experience as we continue to grow and help each other really see everything that's going on in the business to make sure we're hit the right mark. Dear friends, it's Kurt Derdix and welcome back. If this is your first time listening, then I'm so glad you found us. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with my friend Nick Chromitis, co-founder and CEO of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of search firm that leverages the power of relationships and referrals to help high-growth companies recruit the best talent. Rewind to late 2019, my friend Brian Schwartz, who is a Hunt Club expert, referred me to Nick to join the team at Chicago-based Hunt Club, where I'm now the general manager for the West. And at the time of this recording, I've been at Hunt Club for two and a half years now, and I have seen tremendous growth collaborating with Nick and the Hunt Club crew. Objectively, we're one of the fastest growing recruiting companies in the world, and I'm honored to be a part of the team. And for context, Hunt Club Tech, what we do is we transform thousands of subject matter experts, 15,000 and growing now, into the world's most powerful talent network, referring 10x talent in the roles that we're recruiting for. And our clients love it because we deliver an end-to-end, white-glove, done-for-you service. And our team loves it because it makes their life easier. And then we're able to pass on efficiency and savings to the customer. So it's a win-win. And what's meaningful is that it's also our personal growth. Things like listening better and caring more for our clients and team members, aka being better and more effective humans that has really fueled the firm's success. And that's why I dubbed this episode Chief Empathy Officer in honor of Nick, our CEO. This is a special episode for me for several reasons. I'm really grateful for this assignment. Secondly, I'm psyched about the special team we're building. And most importantly, the results we're getting for our beloved clients. Anyone interested in business as a mechanism for self-actualization, as well as the fascinating world of startups and growing and scaling organizations, then this episode is for you. If anyone listening wants to sign up to be a Hunt Club expert and get paid to refer your friends and peers for hot jobs, please sign up at huntclub.com forward slash experts. And of course, if anyone needs help recruiting 10x talent, please do let me or Nick know and we'll be more than happy to help. Please go to curdyd.com to subscribe to my newsletter and see special content I've created. And on to today's show, here's Nick. All right, Nick, nice to see you, buddy. Curdy Day, the legend. Good to see you as well. And really, thank you for doing this. It's a really fun and uh, unique conversation for me because I have the 
privilege and pleasure of working with you. Ditto, my friend. I'm just grateful for you having me, and it's fun to be on the Curdy D Show. So we're gonna. We're, I'm really looking forward to this. I spent a little bit of time thinking about what we're gonna talk about so that I can make my boss look good. I think like one of the things that I usually do is kind of press rewind. And I remember the first time we met, I got an email from one of the Hunt Club experts, a guy named Brian Schwartz, who's a very connected guy. And it was Christmas break, I think of 2019. And I get an email about Hunt Club, cool company out of Chicago, looking to expand out West. And Brian's like, they're looking for a GM and I think you'd be a good fit for the role. And I remember reading the JD and being like, wow, like this is a better JD than I could have written for myself. And uh, so that got my attention. And then I knew Brian had trusted him. So I said, yeah, you know, thumbs up, swipe right. And, you know, all of a sudden I get connected to you. And I remember our first Zoom video and you just like, I just like, this guy is really cool. You were just really easy to talk to. And I was really interested in this because I had been in the, kind of tech market for a long time and I had done a lot of tech events and I had a lot of recruiters sponsor my events and I just had sort of an allergy to like how manual the recruiting process was and so when like I sort of met you and heard about what you were doing I was like man that is such a smart idea and I felt a little bit like I wish I would have come up with that idea. So like, good on Nick. Well, you're making us better every day now, Curtis D. So, so yeah, I think so. Like, catch us up. So you grew up in Chicago, right? So grew up in the northern burbs of Chicago, a small town called Glenview, which is about 14, 15 miles north of the city, and was there up until 18. And I, you know this about me, Curtis D. But you know, I think it's a big part of my identity. It was like tennis was my entire life. When I was a kid and so played tennis every day from like when I was eight or nine years old all the way till 23. And, you know, so it was a huge part of who I was. And a lot, I think a lot of the foundation of going and playing college and trying the shortest professional stint in the history of professional tennis, I think created a lot of who I am today. And I think modeled a lot of the reasons why I love building businesses and, and creating companies. So it's been a big cornerstone of who I am. So you sort of grew up like Ferris Bueller with a tennis racket in your hand. Yeah, exactly right. Running around Chicago with Ferris Bueller, hot dog and a beer in hand. I had a tennis racket and was out of court. Yeah. One of my favorite movies growing up as a kid, and obviously it's set in Chicago and our headquarters now in Chicago in the loop. Just love our, our office where you are now. I'm sort of our remote out here in LA, but there's that world kind of famous world-class Picasso sculpture that's just massive and we can see it right from her office. It's iconic. Yeah. It's great looking at that thing every day. And it's, just, yeah, you know, it's cool. And the, the basketball court, so we can take our papa shots. It's a uh, Sami, our co-founder did a great job. I take no credit for anything about our office ever. It was all, it's all Stephanie and Sami. Yeah. Well, we might have to start uh, making a little company tradition of singing Twist and Shout at the annual event, a la Ferris Bueller, you know? I like it. We are <laughs> on the social committee, so you can get that one done, my friend. Awesome. Awesome. So, tennis, is that something that you just stumbled upon, or did your folks put the racket in your hand? How did that happen? Yeah, so neither of my parents actually played. So, it was my godparents. So, your godparents and your, like, God brothers and sisters, if you're Greek, I'm 100% Greek, or basically your cousins and and close family always. So whoever baptized you in the Greek church, you're generally very close with. And so my God sister was actually a world-class tennis player from a young age. She was two or three years older than me. And she, you know, she ended up 
having a way better career than I ever did. She played at Northwestern, won NCAAs, and played in the U.S. Open. So she was amazing. But she was always incredible. And so when I would go over to their house, we'd go to the court, she'd play. I'd get to hit around with her when I was younger and just sort of took a liking to it from that. And then I remember like it was this really critical point in fifth or sixth grade where, you know, on one side I was still playing baseball and basketball and all these other sports. And this other side I was playing tennis and getting better at it. And basically I had to have a discussion like if I wanted to go try to take tennis to as high of a level as one thought I could, or I thought I could, I would have to make a decision to focus on at that age. And so did that in sixth grade, stopped playing other sports completely. And it's been everything I've done since. So it was really my godparents and my god sister that kind of made me really attracted to the sport growing up. How much older was she than you? She's two years, actually to two years in school and then two years by age. Do you ever beat her? She kicked my butt growing up. Yeah. But I think as we got a little older, I could take her. But she was a way more decorated pound for pound in her in her where she played and what she accomplished in her career, infinitely more decorated than I ever could be. Yeah, she'll probably beat you now. Definitely. I haven't picked the tennis rack in years. <laughs> so I played four years varsity in high school, played tennis, loved it. My dad got me into it. And I played some tournaments and stuff, but I, I even played the Bryan twins one time. Did you? Yeah, didn't even win a game. I mean, that it smoked me. I don't play. So if you ever look on the US Open or like sometimes when those guys are winning Grand Slams, there's this guy, Mark Bay, that travels with them and coaches them at a lot of major tournaments. And that was my junior tennis coach. Oh, fun. Yeah. Well, I got to see them play in Indian Wells a while back. And then they, they're musicians and they had that band. So that was fun to hear them play. play some music too, which I love. Were you like the kid that started winning all the tournaments locally? Chicago actually weirdly has a pretty incredible junior tennis scene and the depth of talent here is pretty amazing. And so one example I'll give you is every year we would do this thing called Davis Cup where basically they would put the best, if you're between the ages of 16 and 18, you form a team and they would take the best team in Chicago to play all the best other cities in the Midwest. And the team that we put together in Chicago probably had like out of 10 kids, nine all played division one tennis wow. at tier one schools. So I would, I'd occasionally win some local events, but it was a battle. And so even at one point, I think we had, if you were to rank the top hundred kids in the country and they had those national rankings and juniors, you know, 15 to 20 would be from Chicago. So we never had that many in like the top 10 or top 15, like always maybe one, but so it was really a great nucleus for junior tennis. So Long-winded way of answering, no, I didn't win that much. The actual yeah. it, but I would get pretty far sometimes. And then you played uh, tennis at Vanderbilt in Nashville, a.k.a. Vandy. Yep. Yeah, four years there. It's great. Yeah, I lived in Nashville for a minute. It's a beautiful town. I was living in Hillsborough Village, and it's, uh, I hear it's changed a lot, but gosh, I love that town. It's incredible. People are so kind and nice. Food's great. Music's great. It's in how much it's changed since I went to school. I graduated in 2009. And so the whole place has transformed since then. And areas that used to be nothing have been fully developed with bars, hotels, condos, restaurants. And it's, it's not so much changed. Yeah. I wish I would have bought some $80,000, $100,000 houses in East uh, Nashville. You wouldn't even go across to East Nashville. Yeah. I remember it was like, not, no, don't go over there. Yeah. And then what was the big insight you learned at school? What's something that stuck with you from Vandy, like from education wise, like coaching or just something that sort of like 
has fortified you? Yeah, I think there were like two or three sort of really kind of critical points just as a person of things I've learned. And some of them are for tennis, some are through some of the programs I went through. And so from an education perspective, when I graduated, I actually went through this sort of pre-MBA program called the Accelerator Program, where it was essentially a four to six week business boot camp where you'd work 15, 18 hour days on different project work. It was actually real-time consulting on real business problems. So for example, Coca-Cola would present an issue to you and their actual executives would say, we're working on solving this problem. And small SWAT teams would have to go and create solutions over the course of a short period of time. And so I loved that. And I think what it really made me learn in early days was just like getting first integrated and acclimated to what business was. The idea of using creative like ideas to solve problems and applying it to a totally different medium than I'd ever experienced different than tennis or school. And so, so going through that program actually taught me that like, I'd be really excited about working in business and like how to apply some of the things I learned from tennis into your work ethic in the professional world. And so it was a great first kind of run. The second thing that I learned more on the tennis side was like playing, we were in the SEC and the SEC was the best conference in tennis when I was playing and it was insanely tough to compete. And so basically out of the top 25 programs in the country, there was one point where the SEC had every single school in the top 25. And so that means every single week you'd be playing some incredible team with incredible players. And so my first year there as a freshman, like I got my absolute ass kicked. Yeah. And so I think one thing it taught me there was that like, there's always a bigger pond. There's always a bigger level to go play at. And really establishing sort of a growth mindset if you're ever not improving or working on your craft, either somebody will come up and pass you or you won't be able to rise to the level to get to the next sort of plateau and build from there. Yeah, I can, I can really appreciate that. So that's sort of like balancing, using kind of your competitive nature as a lever to just keep getting better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the realization that every time you get a little bit better, there's always someone quite a bit better. Yeah, and that's, I think, the balance is the humbling factor. So, yeah. You graduated with a communications degree, right? Yeah, so I actually doubled. So I got a, we have a really cool program at Vanderbilt where you can create sort of your own major or minor. And so we put another thing together called managerial studies, corporate strategies. So it was our version of almost a business degree. And the really cool thing was you get to kind of pick your different classes. So I would take a bunch of entrepreneurship classes marketing, finance, economics, and stitch together in one major. And so did that in, uh, in communications. You're one of the best communicators I've ever met in my life. That's one of the reasons why I came and worked with hey, you. Is, you? Uh, yeah. I've been around. I've met some people. I don't, you know, I, I've got a lot of work to do, but I appreciate it, my man. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've really learned from you, also learned this uh, working with Jeff Sternberg, who I reported to for the first two years and also Vince, who I report to now, is just sort of like being really in the moment about what's kind of happening in a conversation and especially with working with customers and prospects and just trying to really understand who they are and trying to x-ray into the vector of their space, their problems and all of that. And you have it's really an incredible way to be able to intuit what people's wants and needs are. How much of that do you think is just intuitive that you just, that's just a gift that you have and how much of it something you've learned? And if it's, if the latter, what can other people learn on how to be able to copy that or mimic that? It's really a 
powerful. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Curdy. So I think empathy and learning and active listening and anticipating the needs of others is rooted in listening first and hearing them and also thinking thoughtfully about what they're saying and not just reacting. And I think probably a lot of that is how you're raised, where you're from, how you're taught when you're little. And I think a big part of that was probably my relationship with my parents growing up. My mom was one who, from an early age, was one of the most empathetic women in the world. Like she could feel the pulse in the room like that and understand exactly what levers to push and pull on to make you feel great. And she, there was never a person that she interacted with by the end of it was not her like best friend or great friend. And it was just incredible watching her. And so I imagine some of it was learned from just interacting and being with her. And some of it, I think, is how you're raised and taught to treat and care for people and put people first. And I think it's probably a combination of those things. And I'm fortunate to have, I think, you know, great leaders and mentors who have really shown me how to continue to put people first always as your life changes or your business transforms. Yeah. Do you have a pattern where like you find yourself now being able to get triggered that to be able to kind of take a step back and kind of just use that as a lever to not react, but to be responsive is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm working on it every day. It's yeah. the things that make you a solid founder or a good founder sometimes are the things that won't make you a great executive or a great leader at a larger company stage company. And so I think some of the, the same things that one might call visceral reaction or triggers are also instincts and the ability to want to drive fast and course correct. Right. And so it's, so I think today I'm really working on that. If I were giving you one working area that I'm really like putting some effort towards, it is listening to our team. It is not emotionally reacting. It's absorbing all the inputs and then coming to sort of a objective, logical decision on a certain thing or question or scenario. So I think that's it's an area that I think I'll always be working in. And I think an area that um, if you care about performance and you care about doing a great job and you're learning how to work with others and work with a team at different sizes and scales that are changing every three, six, 12, 24 months, it's a constant evolution of learning how to manage those instincts. Yeah. It's very rare for a CEO to be able to scale from kind of a found, like a zero to one founder to a scale founder. And that was one of the things that when I met you, I was placing a bet that Nick can do that. It's really hard to do, but yeah, I think that's a great segue actually into getting into Hunt Club. So you did a quick stint at KPMG for two years. What was the sort of the insight that you learned at KPMG? And then what was sort of the trigger to New Coast Ventures, which essentially was the container that Hunt Club was born from? Yeah. So I think I always felt like I had something to prove after I graduated college. So I really struggled to get a job. And so I graduated in 2009 and right in the height of you know, the last recession. And it was a really difficult one. And so here I thought I was this guy that went to and got a great education and then put his life towards the sport and accomplished a little bit. And I got solid grades in college and graduated and I couldn't get a job or the only jobs I was able to like really get interviews for were entry-level positions. And that were things that I always thought that I would never find myself pursuing. And, um, and it was extremely humbling because like when you play a sport and put your whole life and energy towards it and achieve at a certain level, 
Like it's almost like that whole life stopped in a moment on a dime and you had to go find and rebuild yourself from scratch and start from the bottom or at the beginning. And so one thing I always thought post that one experience I mentioned at Vanderbilt was I wanted to get into consulting. And so graduating and not being able to get into consulting was created a bit of a chip on my shoulder. And so finally using entrepreneurship, and I'll tell that story in a second to land my first job at KPMG was really like a rewarding moment and enriching moment in kind of my younger days professionally. Then I, so going backwards, the way that I got the job at KPMG was I had a Scott Case in our current CTO and I had built a different business called Athliance. It was the first company I'd ever started. And what we had done was we effectively built LinkedIn groups for student athletes. So alums, current student athletes could all sign up, drop their networks in and then ask for introductions or networking conversations or just track what other people were doing in their sports, other sports. And so we'd built that while I was still at Northwestern. We started scaling it and selling it to universities. And so when I was interviewing for jobs again, because we got to this kind of point where we didn't really know where to take it, the logical answer would have been more schools, but we weren't smart enough at that time, was basically I used that whole experience to pitch myself that I could get a job in consulting and I actually had business experience. So I went through the interview process. I had two offers at different firms and just shared with them. I don't have consulting experience. But I have built a product from scratch. I launched it. I got thousands of users. I had two universities paying us, went through the sales process. And so it was great to like actually leverage entrepreneurship to get an opportunity. And then I pretty quickly found out my first couple of months at KPMG, I loved the building side of what we were doing and didn't love sort of the more structured environment of a large consulting firm. And I loved and so grateful and thankful for my time at KPMG where I had some great people that trusted me and taught me a lot and mentored me and learned objective thinking, structured thinking, great project management skills, sharpened some technical skills in Excel and building presentations and storytelling. So there was a ton of great things that came out of it. But at the end of the day, like loved the building and creation of things and the excitement of that. And I think once you do that once, it's which created a year of multiple time entrepreneur, like you realize building with passionate people like it's really hard to do anything but that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. It. Yeah, and it's almost like KPMG was your. You got paid to do an MBA in a way. For sure, right? For sure. I love that. The thing I skipped over though is you did, and you mentioned this earlier. So you had, in your own words, arguably one of the shortest pro tennis careers. Yeah. So you, that was sort of after school, got a couple ATP points, and then you said F that, and right. Yeah. I mean, the story was I went to basically at one ATP point, I think it was like 16,666 in the world and made a professional tournament. <laughs> and like, these are the least glamorous professional tournaments. You are in a remote city in the middle of the Midwest somewhere, and you're staying in a Hampton Inn with four other guys in a room in cots just to make ends meet. And you're eating at whatever local restaurant, spending five to 12 bucks a meal. And like, you're paying all your own expenses. And so the where the rubber sort of met the road for me was after the first tournament, I think I'd made like $300 and the costs for the whole thing was $800 or something like that between gas, between mileage, between yeah, drinking courts. Wow. I just lost $500. I should probably go think of a new career. And tennis is like an insanely difficult sport to like one crack at the end of the day and two like make great money at support your life and the lifestyle you might want. So I didn't have enough paths. Do you remember the moment when you decided I'm going to over it? Yeah, it was probably honestly after my senior year, my last match at the SEC championship. 
honestly felt like it was a huge weight off my shoulders. It was a yeah, that was the next question. Yeah. Normally you'd think that like after spending your whole life doing something, the last match, second to last match you'll ever play, or third to last match you'll ever play in your life, like the, your last college match ever, like there would be some sadness and it'd be really introspective. And it I think it just felt like a huge weight had been lifted off me. Yeah. Well, that's some confirmation that something new is on the horizon, right? Totally. And yeah, yeah. It was incredible. I was telling some of the story the other day and it just it felt felt like a new person where I no longer had to wake up at five thirty and go to practice or be at the court every day for three to five hours. And it was a new start. Yeah. I love that. So we're kind of skipping around again. So like kind of fast forward back, what was, I really want to get into the nitty gritty with hunt club, but so new coast ventures was a venture studio that you guys started, I think from to what, 10 million you guys raised or something like that. Right. Yeah. We invested a little bit north of that over kind of a three or four year period. Yeah. And then you guys were building, so it was a in the classic kind of venture studio. You're also building your own products and bringing to market. One of them was Speckless that you sold to GoPuff, right? Yeah. So we partnered on that with Steve Corby, who's an amazing founder, and then Shashank Sharma. And so it's a really funny story. We were like all in this all room together in the early days building it. And they went out, actually ran it and scaled it. And I helped them outside, helped them raise money, get into tech stars, help them transition the business with GoPuff. So it's yeah, it was just a really cool experience watching them take that to success at the end. And then Hunt Club was second. Cool. And then you guys also did some of the other investments you made were like in Hip Camp, right? And any other notable ones that you're grateful for or proud of? Yeah, I think all of them in some form or fashion, but Hip Camp has grown tremendously well. They're obviously changing how people find the outdoors. And we were in their first round of funding and super early. I think it was like a four or five million dollar pre or post money round. Binti is another amazing company out in the Valley. So they're doing some really incredible things about automating the adoption process and helping really take like the monotony out of the paperwork. That's really difficult and difficult to understand, difficult to complete and helping sort of counties and, and government systems reimagine how they actually complete those. So very fired up about them, very fired up about a company called Acre, who is one of our customers. They're more recent and actually personal, not New Coast. But net is, yeah, like loved all of our investments, made some great ones that are great investments, made some really poor ones that were great learnings with great people. And yeah, I think it was, it's just been a fun journey learning that side of the world too. Yeah. And then I know the Hunt Club story, but to catch the audience up that does it and to kind of celebrate the origin story for those Hunt Clubbers that are listening, what the story is that one of your buddies is a recruiter, right? And he kept asking you for a LinkedIn introductions. Yeah. Yeah. I kept looking at my LinkedIn and asking for all or intros and I kept placing before him and yeah, was like, dude, what is your business? Tell me more. I need to learn. Why do I keep getting an email back saying I never would have taken this job had it not been for our relationship and how does the industry work? Yeah. So you helped him get a bunch of five or six folks placed. You helped him make a whole big, big stack of cash. Yeah. I think is a, I mean, that made, but that would make sense. I mean, were there some like thank you dinners that you had with him and you're like, tell me more as kind of another great lunch where like he took you and got a great cheeseburger and a Coke and like it was probably $2 <laughs> and it was awesome. But no, I mean, I got like a bottle of wine and like all the stuff people traditionally send. It was just fascinating to me. The tipping point as to where I thought there could be an opportunity was 
when I kept getting an email back from the people I'd introduce and they would be thanking me for the introduction and that their whole life has changed. They took this great new job they never would have considered had it not been for our relationship. And so that was like the initial aha moment where I'm not a part of this process, but I just created an introduction that impacted an outcome that helped a recruiter or consultants win for their customer, helped a customer or client find a great new candidate and helped a person find a job they're really excited about. And it really made me want to go start taking some time to understand how that space works and how the industry actually operated. Yeah. And then it just so happened that your co-founder and CTO, Scott Kaysen's father, was an executive recruiter at Egon Zender, which is objectively, I think, top four recruiting shop globally by revenue. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. And then one we admire too, the way they hire people and care for their people and their culture is just amazing. I think we model a lot of the way things we do at Hunt Club today off of their, their culture. Was there a conversation with Scott's dad? Like, hey, how, how do you do it? And he's similar answer where you just have a network and hit it and you guys should. Because that's the thing that when I first heard about the idea, like I actually had a similar idea to this. I just didn't sort of think it through. And actually, I remember thinking like, oh, it'd be great to get people to share their address their book with me but then like that's a real messy process and then actually make the thing work what was sort of that conversation that you guys had around hey there's a there there and we could put a wrapper around this warm referral mechanism yeah i think it was a combination of kind of three or four things so think of it as three or four different data points coming together in an aha moment so the first was yeah, obviously my own referral experience. So it just yeah. impacted a process. The second was I actually had client services experience at KPMG. And I was always wondering like why in an operating model powered by people doing different levels of work, is there not more automation or thoughts around how do we like crowd share the templates or different models so that like we can get this stuff done faster. And so I just felt like just being in the services industry, there's a lot of room for automation and augmentation in a wide variety of different ways. The tipping point was then shadowing a couple firms, just buddies and or acquaintances, and just watching them run their business. And a lot of the actions that they're taking are like really repetitive, especially in the first kind of 50 yards of the process. The back 50 yards, as far as like really like knowing your customers and understanding how to manage it great candidate or talent to completion in a process and really match making the two to effectively make sure it's a great fit and they'll be successful together requires a ton of finesse, experience, empathy, and just skill. But the front half of the process felt like it did not require the volume of people that these firms were hiring and the quality of the experience is diminishing because of it. And so, so I thought to myself, like, there's probably a ton we could do there. Yeah, that makes sense. And that was really the tipping point was when you shadow these firms, you realize they're all calling on networks. They're not using technology. And there's a huge opportunity to kind of transform the way they operate if you build it from digital from scratch. Yeah. And it's a problem that's persistent. I mean, it's sort of like last mile or transportation. Like people are always going to be moving around and people's careers are dynamic. So they're I don't know the latest stats, but I remember when I was at Esri, our average employee retention was five and a half years. And that was a big deal because that's a long time. A long time. Relative to rest of the market, which is probably sub three years. 
Yeah, it depends on the types of companies you look at, but like certainly like technology businesses or companies, it's got to be somewhere between 18 to kind of 28 months. Yeah. And sort of you putting your investor hat on, we're probably kind of really attuned to TAM, total addressable market, probably saw this art opportunity to bring some technology into a, a big TAM that was pretty manual. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's a brilliant idea. Well, it's really sexy to investors when you first started too. So we bootstrapped it for three years. And before starting the company, I don't know if you and I were going to talk about this part, but I actually spoke to two founders who had started and failed businesses in the in just building referral marketplaces. And both of them shared the same insight that if they had put a services layer between the referral and the customer, it probably would have worked. Yep. And so that was kind of the insight in the beginning was like, let's go out and play in a massive space. But in order to be successful, it required some sort of heavy account management, customer success or managed service. And so in the early days of Unclub, we bootstrapped it. But every time I talked to an investor, their comment would always be, why aren't you just taking that software and selling it? And I'd be like, well, it doesn't solve the entire problem. Like the referral to the hiring manager, like both these human beings are super busy. You're not sure if the candidate's actually interested. The hiring manager is doing 10,000 other jobs. Like they're not going to hunt down this candidate unless it's like laid up for them. It's the right one. And so there's too much friction from the two meeting unless it like timing is perfectly aligned. So I think in the early days, it's a massive TAM. No one's touched really changing or transforming the category by blending technology and service. And so I always believe pairing the two would be the solution to actually dent it long-term. Yeah, I think just sort of the way the things worked out. A lot of times there's a lot of luck involved and a timing is so much a part of it, randomness. And I started on March 2nd of 2020. So I remember. And I came out from Chicago for week one of onboarding. And then I went back to LA and I was supposed to come out for week two. And I got the note that, hey, no more travel. COVID is here. And I remember by the end of March, I was like WTF. And into April, I was like, this is the worst career decision I ever made. But you stuck with it every day and we are I mean, like, I think the whole team pulled together. That was a really wild summer. I think everybody was just like such a, the thing that's interesting about COVID, I'll just say this quickly, is like with 9-11, like we've all, we all know it happened. Maybe the most common like thing that we could, most of us can agree on is that just experience of TSA has been the result, right? For sure. I'm going to take off your shoes and all that. But like with COVID, like everybody across the world experienced it. Uh, the way that we came out of it, just this big hockey stick and ramp on revenue and those couple capital raises and the team growth has been remarkable. I think we got down to about 40 headcount that summer and now we're well over 230 plus, I think at the time of this recording. Did those numbers sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. And then we even built a new product, enterprise SaaS product and called Atlas and just sort of made lemonade out of the lemons. I think that was one of the big insights for me out of COVID. And then the other thing that it's kind of more tailwind for our market that's interesting. And I think something that's germane to anybody listening that's like, especially for hiring managers is this tight labor market. I think it stays persistently tight because the period, the demographic pyramid is getting compressed on both sides. You have the boomers that are retiring, wealthy Gen X that are retiring, but they're still consuming products and services. So the supply is less, but the demand is constant on that side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, like when 
my dad was my age. I was 23 and I still haven't had kids like Holden and I are planning on it. But a hundred years ago, we all lived in farms and we had kids because it was cheap labor. But fast forward to now, we live in cities and it's a luxury to have kids. So there's less people having them. So both sides of the market are just getting changing and getting compressed and making it more unique. And like, those are like very long tail macro changes that are happening over a long period of time. But then there's like all the other short term changes that happened over COVID where now most companies, 80% of our customers can hire anyone anywhere in the country and versus having to relocate somebody to their corporate headquarters or hire somebody in their own backyard. And that's changed the way people hire too, right? And changed how they think about the talent they can attract and how they use network effects to actually get them interested. And if you're a Chicago company trying to hire a great GM in LA, how are you going to get him actually interested? And so I think that's another interesting tailwind for a business long-term is the operating model of using trusted networks as a way to really get interest in markets that traditionally you may not have access or relationships in. Yeah. I love that. And there's a lot of great content for anybody listening that's curious at huntclub.com and ton of great functional content for hiring managers. And there are some insights I wanted to get into there, but I think we're kind of keeping looking at the clock. I'm going to kind of turn the page here. One thing I was really curious about as far as you about being the CEO, real quick highlight, what's one of the best things about being the boss? I'll never think of myself as the boss, but as our CEO... I think it's just getting to really help teams collaborate. So regardless of how much you try and break down the barriers of information and visibility as to what's going on in the entire org, if you're not the CEO, you effectively have some functional expertise or domain in an area. Even if you do have a broad mandate or remit, it's not the entire remit. And so I think one of the coolest things that I get to do on a day-to-day basis is really help other leaders work effectively with each other, break down barriers on communicating or figuring out how to line tighter on priorities and progress. And so that's been an incredibly fun and tough learning experience as we continue to grow and help each other really see everything that's going on in the business to make sure we're hit the right mark. Yeah. Yeah. So orchestrations, getting the symphony kind of in the same key and the same meter reminds me of that I've shared this with you. My mentor, Duke Stump, has this idea that you cannot create the magic, but you can create the conditions for the magic. And so you're the magic conditioner, man. But that was kind of awkward. Magic. I was trying to be more, so more pithy. I would argue everyone in our company is a magic conditioner, but like, I guess that's a good title. Hardest thing about being the CEO and maybe things that people might take for granted or be naive about that you have to deal with. Yeah, I think it's the gravity of the choices you make as an individual and as a leadership team and impacting and affecting a wide variety of others and rippling effects in different ways. And I think, you know, I've been in an exercise of like, you have to just increase and heighten your thoughtfulness as you do certain things. Whereas in the early days, you're a small five to 10 person team in a room, every decision, even if they aren't informed about it, they hear it happening. And then as they figure it above 200 people, there's people not in the room as decisions are made. Is there people in different parts of the country. So that the transmission mechanism gets decayed. Yeah. And I think so yeah. learning the right way to do that and the right time and how to communicate and how to create transparency and do it authentically, I think is something that I'm constantly working towards and add as a CEO. And I think then also, I think learning how to make sure you're picking your spots on feedback and communication. So in, in the early days too, you 
I don't think of myself as the CEO. I never have. I think of myself as the teammate and we're still in a 10 person room and like trying to build a business. So sometimes, and that's a bit of a founder mentality, but sometimes when you're communicating to someone that doesn't get to interact with you that much or came later in the stage of the business, I think the gravity of your words feel differently towards your teammates. So I think learning how to use that voice the right way is a tough challenge and something we're constantly working towards. Yeah. Kind of one of the final questions, it's one of the cores of the show is humanizing success. And you know a lot about the challenges I've worked through and my life still working through. Having said that, what's a challenge personally or professionally that you face and overcame that you're comfortable sharing and had to get over the hurdle and what gift did that pain give you? Yeah. I think there's been a couple. I think like a big one that you not, you may not even know, is I actually lost my mom when I was 12. And so that shocked my worlds in a way that is really difficult to, as a 12 year old going into like one of the most transformative times in your life. I mean, you don't really understand that's what it is now, but looking back at it, we're yeah. physically changing or emotionally changing. You're going through this really intense period of awkwardness, and lack of confidence and all these things in a pot. And then you lose your rock, right? Like that kind of shakes you. And so I think it taught me a lot. I think it taught me resiliency and how to heal and self-heal. And I think those are really important lessons just in life. I think it taught me to be really grateful for the moments we have with the people that mean something to us. And I think oftentimes it's hard to learn that lesson at a young age, but I think it's maybe shaped my perspective on how I interact with people or care about different moments with those I care about. That's beautiful. What was your mom's name? Margo. Margo. Well, next time I have a margarita, I'm going to cheers it to Margo. Thanks, Curdy D. Yeah, that's a really bittersweet story. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I'm sorry you had to deal with that. I and mean, what a gift. Yeah. You know, 12 years of life with her was a true gift. Yeah. And professionally, I failed a company or two and put my heart into it and went on stage at a brandery demo day and it didn't work out. And so like I've seen the ugly side of starting something and having it go to zero and learning from those lessons as well. It's always about like failing forward and taking a growth mindset. And I think as you go through those motions and create some resiliency, it's incredible what you can kind of kind of do in the next one and the next one. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Love that. Two more questions. We've got two more minutes and we're going to let you get on to your day. I love music. So if you could have any band, any artist, rapper, it could be any music group, play any venue, past, present, or future, who would it be and where? So band I grew up loving, which may come as a shock to you, is actually Sublime. Hell yeah. I loved them growing up. Had every single one of their albums. Yeah. I saw them live back in the day. Jack Johnson opened up for them in Santa Barbara and I got to go see him. Yeah, I would love to have like, one of their shows you know and get to see them actually play live well i got great news i saw the new version of sublime last summer yeah they're good do they play bad fish yeah they play it all it's amazing let's do that where what venue hunt club 2023 everybody at the annual event annual event (laughs) hunt club 2023 it's funny i love music but i don't go to that many concerts so i couldn't even tell you like special events wrigley field love the clubs Oh, right, yeah. There we go. Hunt Club, uh, Client Appreciation Party, Wrigley Field, all the customers and employees and partners. 
Well, Nick, you are a mensch. How can our audience be helpful to you? And if people want to follow along online, how what's a good channel and handle? Yeah, so check out um, huntclub.com or our, at our Twitter or on our LinkedIn page. It's just huntclub or at huntclub.co or huntclubco. If anyone's looking for great talent and struggling and just want to try a different model that we think works quite well, like just reach out nick at huntclub.com and we'd love to take great care of you and show you what a what great talent can look like from thousands of business leaders referring on your behalf. Yeah, I love that. Well, so much gratitude, Nick. Thank you for creating this wonderful career and supporting folks like me and all of our customers and putting everybody first. We really appreciate you. Appreciate you, Curdy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Thanks again to my friend and boss, Nick Kromitis, for being our guest. I appreciate how much I've been able to learn from Nick and the rest of the crew, and also for the seat on the rocket ship that is Hunt Club. I'm so excited to see what we do next. As we say at the firm, LFG. <laughs> LFG. <laughs> I'm at Curdy D on Twitter and Instagram. Also, Kurt Derdix on LinkedIn. And until next time, Curdy D loves you. Thanks for listening. To review the show notes for this episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, and any links mentioned, visit curdyd.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to be notified when new episodes go live. Stay tuned for more unique perspectives shaping the world on The Curdy D Show.